Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Okay, let's get straight into it tonight because, as always, and I say it every week, we have a busy show ahead of us tonight. We could be on seven days a week. There's so much material out there in the natural world. Let's say hello to Aina Nilana, Richard Collins, and Niall Hatch, all at their respective homes. And Aina, I believe you want to refer back to Halloween. What's going on? Yes, indeed, Derek. Halloween may have come and gone, but mm-hmm. pumpkins linger on. <laughs> and, of course, when people have had their faces cut in them and put them outside with candles in them for a week, they're not fit to eat and they throw them out and put get rid of them. And in Britain, what the people are doing, apparently, is bringing the pumpkins out and putting them in the woods. Three million pumpkins. And they're being told by the woodland people that this is causing hedgehogs to get ill. The hedgehogs eat them and they have diarrhoea and they're supposed to be eating stuff to fatten up for hibernation. And this is a bad idea. Now, I'm wondering about that kind of advice. I mean, hedgehogs are actually carnivores. Are they going to go off and eat a pumpkin? I mean, they're not already in hibernation now that it's November. I I just wonder, is that just a a ruse to stop people putting pumpkins in the woodlands and make them put the pumpkins on their compost heaps? I I, I just don't know what they do with them in Ireland, but that's that's what the advice is in England, apparently. So there you go. Well, October, November is the time when animals go into hibernation here. So it's really, in terms of mammals, it's bats and, as you mentioned, hedgehogs, ain't it, that go into hibernation? Richard Collins is in Malahide. Richard, what do you think of this? Hello, Derek. Yes, um, I... I think that hibernators have a bit of an advantage with global warming. Not so many things benefit from global warming, but the global warming will lessen the amount of time they have to stay asleep. So, so I would think it would slightly benefit. It should. I mean, it's not just a body clock thing. Temperature must affect them as well. So uh, they they go down and they come up earlier, I hope. But does anyone know for sure that they do that? Or are they going to stay with the old order? Are they going to adapt to their new? Who knows, Richard? Who knows? Niall, do you? <laughs> Talking of hibernation, Derek, mm-hmm. it's not just the mammals that do it. And there's different no. degrees of hibernation. Obviously, it's a, it's a period of inactivity for, for frogs and for toads at this time of year. So many Insects sort of become dormant in the winter as well. It'll be a long time now until we'll see another butterfly, I would predict. Uh, So, yeah, not just the mammals, of course. Um, I'm sure at this stage you're wondering, why are we teasing you with the subject of hibernation? Well, the idea that humans can hibernate, be put to sleep for extended periods of long intergalactic journeys, has been a preoccupation of science fiction on both the big and small screen for some time now. This suspended animation, or cryosleep, hypersleep, or simply hibernation, is seen in movies like Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Planet of the Apes, Alien and others, and TV shows like The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, and Doctor Who. But while widespread across the animal kingdom, could humans hibernate? Did we once have and then lose this ability? What are the possible reasons for putting humans into a state of hibernation? Professor Vladislav Vyazovsky is a member of Oxford University's Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. He is also a member of the topical team on torpor and hibernation led by the European Space Agency. And he joins us now from Oxford. Vladislav, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Hello, Derek. It's uh, nice to be on your programme. And uh, I, I, would, I love talking about this fascinating state called hibernation, and especially when we talk about the possibility of hibernation in humans. Could you begin by defining exactly what hibernation is, please? Uh, so there is a lot of confusion in this uh, area. So sometimes hibernation and sleep are conflated. Sometimes you see that cryosleep is equated with hibernation and it is not uh, quite the same. Well, this, of course, affects how we look at this state and this affects how we think about possible applications of this state 
talking, for example, about space travel or talking about medical applications. Uh, and therefore, I would like first to uh, kind of help and define these terms a little bit. Uh, so what, what hibernation is? Hibernation is a state characterized by reduced metabolic rate. So it, it, it refers to uh, slowing down of all physiological processes in the body or biochemical reactions. And this is a really clever strategies animals invented to deal with uh, harsh environmental conditions. This is when they require less food, less oxygen, and they can survive very, very harsh, very difficult environmental factors. And this is what animals do. But uh, the question is, is it what we want to achieve in humans? Uh, so it is not quite the same as cryosleep, because cryo refers to very low temperatures, sub-freezing temperatures. And, and I would say this is not at all what we would like to do with humans. We, we are not going to freeze humans, at least it will, will never be our first priority. What we want to do is indeed induce a state would be more similar like sleep, maybe similar to what bears do during the winter. You know, they, they don't cool down really by more than just a few degrees. They enter a state which looks like very deep sleep, but their metabolic rate decreases by um, 70%. So this is our uh, aim. This is why researchers and scientists across uh, the globe studying the basic physiology of the state, because indeed applications uh, are, are many and varied. Vlad, that's very interesting. In the animal kingdom, you have two stages. You have true hibernation. Small animals can do that. They can go right down to a tiny fraction of their temperature and reduce their metabolism enormously. But as you say, bears don't really hibernate. They go torpid. Now, you're contemplating going torpid in humans. If you take a human being at present, how low can his temperature go before he fails to come back up again? Yes. OK, yeah, this is, this is a great question. So again, going back to terminology. So when we use the term torpor, it refers to pretty much any state of reduced metabolism. Then there are different kinds of torpor. So one type of torpor is called daily torpor. And this is experienced by some small animals, small rodents, who would decrease their body temperature and metabolic rate uh, for just a few hours every day. This is why we call it a daily torpor. But then true hibernators, including bears, but also some other animals like uh, ground squirrels, they're seasonal hibernators. They spend most of the winter in a state of seasonal hibernation or hibernation defined as a seasonal torpor. So it can last for many months. So this is why it is different from this daily phenomenon called daily torpor. Uh, so hibernation can be characterized by very low body temperature, but uh, hibernation can also be described by a relatively modest decrease in body temperature as in bears. So I think then going back to your question, so what is it that we want to induce in humans? I would say we don't want humans to pull down too much. So, and it is uh, not necessary. So, you know, you can save um, a lot of energy without being cold. So this is uh, why we can probably learn something from, from bears. Yes, it's said of bears that the reason they don't go down any lower in temperature is that they're very big and it takes a long time to cool down and a very long time to come back up again. Whereas if you're a small little creature like a bat, you can go down quickly and come up quickly again. So it's not that the bear can't do it. It's just that it isn't practical for a bear to do it. Is it practical for a human to go down below 10 degrees below normal temperature? Or is that ruled out by some physiological problem that will arise if the temperature falls too low? Yeah, that, 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 that's again a good question. But it is on not only what is practical, but first of all, whether we have adaptation for regulating the state at lower temperature, right? So hibernation torpor are not just cooling down to environmental temperature. It is a very strictly controlled physiological state. So this is especially clear in animals which undergo daily torpor. They cool down to just about like one degree Celsius above the ambient temperature and they maintain it very precisely. Uh, but another angle is whether the, our body can tolerate low temperature, whether our heart, for example, or the brain 
can survive decrease to temperatures below certain uh, level like, like in bears. This is why when we are talking about inducing hibernation in humans, we should think not only about how to induce the state, but also whether when you emerge from the state, you are still the same, the same bear or the same human. If your brain was not altered, your brain was not damaged, or there was no harmful consequences for the heart, for example, or for other organs. So I think this is really whether your body is programmed to deal with low temperatures. Now you hear of cases, particularly of babies, that are underwater for long periods of time and thought to be drowned. And there are reports of them being brought back after considerable periods underwater and starved of oxygen and still managing to survive. Are these reports true? And if they are, can it be extended and used in research or in a practical hibernation programme? Yeah, the, there is a lot of interest in cases like that. So if you talk about neonates, like small babies, there is indeed evidence that they can tolerate very low temperatures. As far as I know, much less is known whether this is possible in humans. So of course we know that uh, in heart surgery, you, you could cool down, you can uh, shut down the thermal regulation, you could cool down the, an adult human, it needs a lot of life support to maintain bodily functions and then uh, it is a sl slow and complicated process to warm up the patient. Uh, but there are some anecdotal reports when humans indeed experienced very severe hypothermia, for example, on the mountain Everest or falling into uh, freezing water and uh, spending a considerable amount of time and they could still be brought back to, to life. So I think theoretically it is possible, but of course it is a huge stress and indeed what babies can potentially tolerate uh, or practically can tolerate. So it's not yet established well in uh, humans whether it can be tolerated and without any serious harmful consequences. But in theory, you could use brain cells removed from a patient and test how low you can go in oxygen deprivation, for instance, before those cells are damaged permanently. Could you? Y yes, absolutely. And people, people have done it. So scientists have uh, looked at uh, cells, how they function in, at low temperatures. And uh, quite fascinating observations were made. Uh, which uh, uh, suggests that um, if you take uh, brain slices consisting of neurons and New York, new, neurons are uh, interconnected with each other with synaptic contacts. So when cells, when you put them in the fridge and cells, this culture of cells, this brain slices experiencing low temperature, then synaptic contacts can prune. So basically the con synaptic connectivity is, is reducing uh, as a result of cold. And then when you take out these brain slices into the normal temperature, then synaptic contacts can re-establish. And there is, there is evidence is accumulating that this is what may be happening during spontaneous hibernation. So far, evidence is that this is temperature-related, so it remains to be determined whether it's uh, also related to decreased metabolic rate. But uh, this is an absolutely fascinating finding in a, a really interesting case of uh, synaptic or neuronal plasticity. So that after experiencing this synaptic pruning, cells can reestablish contacts and return to a normal pattern of connectivity. So are you hopeful that it will be possible to put people into a state of torpidity for prolonged periods? Or is this just a, a science fiction dream? I'm um, not simply hopeful, but I'm certain that this is, this is a, whether humans can hibernate. It is a fact that has not happened yet, but it's a question of time. As far as we know, there is nothing special about humans that would prevent us from hibernating. When you say that prolonged, whether we can put a human being in a prolonged hibernation, this is a, dif a different question. Even, even those animals which hibernate the entire winter, like ground squirrels, for example, you know that they warm up every week or so for reasons we don't quite understand. So although they stay, stay in hibernation entire winter, but, but, the, but it consists of cycles of hibernation. They warm up. Maybe humans, maybe when we uh, think of how induce hibernation in humans, we need to understand also why uh, the cycles of hibernation happen. 
and how to make sure that humans can also experience those cycles uh, when they uh, hibernate. As I said, I'm not simply hopeful, I'm sure, but there is still a lot for us to understand about this state. We can definitely induce an abnormal state of reduced body temperature or even reduced metabolism. But we need to learn from animals how animals do it in the wild. So probably we humans just forgot how to do it because we have other uh, ways to deal with harsh environmental conditions. So we simply do not have this necessity. But we might be, and quite likely we are equipped with uh, physiological mechanisms that can enable us to do that. So I'm very hopeful. May sound like a very odd question, Vlad, but for what reason? Why would we bother putting ourselves into hibernation? Yeah, this is really a great question because you can see a lot of interest, for example, in relation to space travel. And I'm quite surprised that quite often uh, we talk about sending people to Mars. So Mars is definitely not a friendly place. So actually, I am wondering why everybody wants to go to Mars. We are not going to survive there, but it's definitely interesting for long distance space travel. So there is, you know, the Earth is becoming small for us. So we... We want to explore outer space. We want to explore other planets which are potentially habitable. So hibernation is definitely one way and probably the only way to reach remote planets. But it has a lot of applications also here on Earth at many different levels, from dealing with trauma uh, or um, uh, surgery or uh, in general in emergency medicine, maybe even in stroke. So there is a lot of potential in hibernation as a state, which I already described, the absolutely fascinating case of neuronal plasticity. So there is an interest in scientists' work on understanding neuronal mechanisms of this synaptic remodeling, which is associated with the cycles of hibernation and rewarming. And if we could learn from animals how they do it, how they prune their synapses and then reestablish synapses when they rewarm, This opens really tremendous opportunities in neurodegenerative disorders, for example. Vladislav, what about critically ill individuals who are sometimes put into a medically induced coma? Now, as I understand it, the purpose for this is to allow the brain to recuperate after an injury. Is that not a form of temporary hibernation in humans that already exists? I think uh, hibernation is a fundamentally different state. So if, if I record brain activity, it may look like comatose, right? Because brain is not, not very active, so neurons are not very active. But physiologically, coma is not a regulated, controlled physiological state, or anesthesia is not. Hibernation, it is. So hibernation is a physiological state. I think really in the future, we would not anesthetize the human being or put it in medi- medically induced coma, but we would induce hibernation. I think this is really the future in medicine. Yes, I was very interested in all of that, Vlad. Um, we do, I suppose, go into hibernation every day. We go to sleep and we waken up again. And brain activity has been heavily monitored in sleeping humans. We have different states of sleep. We have deep sleep. We have REM sleep. And these are we, when our brain is very busy sorting out the day. Now, have you ever done brain examinations of animals in true hibernation? What is their brains doing? Are they in any kind of having dreams or any activity or have the brain slowed down as well as the body? Are they just taken over? And if that's the case, then do they ever remember anything when they waken up? People in comas never remember what caused the accident or they don't remember. So is there a problem if with our brains if it ceases to work for a while and um, might we not remember anything we did before that. So what's happening? What's happening during that time in the brain when animals are hibernating? This is a, a really great question. So yes, indeed, I study sleep. I'm actually a sleep researcher. I'm a sleep neuroscientist by training. I, I'm running some projects on hibernation and also not, not only myself, of course, but many of my colleagues or several of my colleagues across the globe, they're doing studies addressing the relationship between sleep and hibernation. So sleep, uh, as, you, as you said, is of two kinds, non-REM sleep and REM sleep, uh, so which are quite distinctly different. And hibernation is, um, is a distinct state in a way. So um, as I mentioned already, so sometimes sleep and hibernation are conflated, but 
by, but uh, we define sleep by brain activity and behavior, such as reduced responsiveness, and hibernation is de de defined by levels of metabolism. So what happens in the brain? So what we find is that uh, when the animal is entering a state of hibernation, it must first fall asleep. So you don't go into a state of hibernation from wakefulness for reasons we don't understand. But sleep uh, seems to be like a opening the gate to state of hibernation. You cannot uh, take a shortcut, so you must fall asleep first. And when you enter sleep, which transitions into hibernation, it looks indistinguishable from normal sleep. But then as you progress into hibernation, as your, your metabolic rate and, and body temperature and brain temperature decreases, then you have less and less neuronal activity. As you know, the EG that we record, for example, in humans or in mice is, is arising from coordinated activity of millions of neurons in the brain. So they need to be synchronized in time and space for those brain waves to, to occur and to be um, uh, to enable recording. So neurons get less active, so they produce less spikes and, and it looks like they produce spikes in a less coordinated manner. Maybe because, as I mentioned, the synaptic connectivity is disrupted. So this results in the overall decrease in the amplitude of those uh, waves. It looks uh, like deep sleep or almost like an anesthetized state from very limited um, data that we have at our disposal. But it looks very distinct from sleep. It looks very distinct and uh, interestingly we find that uh, REM sleep or paradoxical state of sleep virtually disappears at low temperatures. So now the question is, what are you experiencing when you are hibernating? Are you experiencing anything at all? And to me, it's a really fascinating question. So we, we simply do, do not know how does it feel to be hibernating. Since we uh, define uh, hibernation as sleep using different criteria, then in theory, you can be awake while hibernating, right? So you can have low metabolic rate, you can have very shallow breathing, consume very little oxygen, but you can be awake and conscious. So how does it feel? We have no idea. Can you experience pain? We don't know. Can you suffer? We don't know. I think really we need to understand better this state of hibernation from the neurophysiological point of view, not only from the metabolic, for example. Uh, whether you are dreaming, this is really an amazing question. So we do know that you need to have some brain activity to experience dreams. Uh, it is, it is um, uh, very peculiar, it is somewhat different from your wake consciousness, uh, but uh, definitely um, uh, you, you need brain activity to, to, to produce this imagery character uh, associated with dreams. So yes, the answer is we do not know, it is possible and maybe uh, just the experience of hibernation is not simply quantitatively but qualitatively different from wakefulness or dreaming. I'm curious as well, Vlad, whether we know if there are genetic uh, components here. Are there genes in certain animals that uh, are responsible for this hibernation uh, behavior uh, or, or state of hibernation? And if so, do we know if those genes are present in other animals, but just not activated? And indeed, could they be present in us humans, but not activated? Uh, as far as I know, we have not found a gene for hibernation. So there is a lot of interest in this area indeed. So, the, so we, uh, our colleagues taking samples from hibernating bears, hibernating squirrels, they're doing transcriptomics, they're looking at expression of different genes at different phases uh, of the hibernation cycle. And they're also comparing animals to who hibernate and who do not hibernate or we do not know that they are hibernating. We, we cannot see any fundamental differences in their genetic makeup that would account for that. What is probably more important if there is some areas in the brain or some circuitries in the brain which are responsible or important for inducing the state of hibernation. So of course the, the, the function of those circuits would be defined by the genes which are expressed there. So some of those brain areas are defined by specific genetic markers, by expression of specific peptides or neurotransmitters. Uh, but it is also about how they're interconnected with other areas. So yes, to going back to your question, so uh, uh, there is a lot of interest in, in genetics and in, uh, functional genomics of um, hibernation. 
but as far as I can tell, we haven't found any anything that would be an obvious um, uh, a target or a candidate for that. So a lot more research to be carried out by the sounds of things, Vladislav. Thank you very much indeed. It was fascinating listening to you. I'd never once considered the possibility of going into a state of hibernation, but I will from now on. Thank you very much for uh, talking to me. I also really enjoyed this discussion. We all did, Vladislav. We all did. Now, I have a little teaser for you at home. Can you tell me which poem the following lines are from? I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. Any ideas? The opening lines from The Song of the Wandering Angus by William Butler Yeats, magically transporting us to that hazel wood. The question is, though, what are your favourite mentions and depictions of trees in poetry and prose? Well, you'll be delighted to hear that the good people from Maynooth University's Department of English are running a project called Trees and Irish Literature and are looking for your suggestions to build a public archive. Now, if you're a regular listener to Mooney Goes Wild, you will know that our very own Aileen Ilana is president of the Tree Council of Ireland. So who better to send to Maynooth to find out more about this wonderful project? Thank you, Derek. I'm here talking to Stephen O'Neill, Associate Professor of English here in Maynooth University, and I'm talking to him here standing under the most ancient yew tree in Ireland, or so they say. They would say that, wouldn't they? But this is the tree that Silken Thomas played his lute under, apparently, before he went off to London with his five uncles to be beheaded in the Tower of London for supporting a, a pretender to the throne. They didn't put up with people in those days. And if it was big enough in those days, at the end of the 1400s, to be playing a lute under, it must have been here for some time before that so it probably is quite an old tree and why else would I be here only to ask you about your project Stephen? What we're trying to build is a public archive of the Irish tree, the tree in literature. The tree is well in visual culture it's not unique to literature and the project is original in trying to build this archive so we all probably have listeners will be thinking about their favourite tree or this interview might inspire them to think about their favourite tree in an Irish poem in a poem they studied in college and school in childhood but it's about then trying to find how these different examples of the tree in literature might interconnect what kind of stories emerge when we put all the information together so what the project is going to try and do once it has the findings in is interpret those findings and find a way to visualize these quotations working with the a visual artist katie holton who listeners will know designed this tree alphabet work with her in a, an exhibition that will be both online and will also have an exhibition in the university to showcase what people have noticed in their reading and thinking then about how we might interpret these findings. There are lots of Irish poets who have written wonderful poems on trees, but I think Patrick Cavanagh's Beech Tree is, is a great poem, and I'm sure many people will have learned this one. I planted in February a bronze-leafed beech. In chill brown soil I spread out its silken fibres, protected it from goats with wire netting and fixed it firm against the worrying wind. Now it is safe, I said. April must stir my precious baby to greenful loveliness. It is August now. I had hoped, but I hope no more. My beech tree will never hide sparrows from hungry hawks. Well, that's an example of something that struck me, not your usual one-of-the-mill poem about a tree. What do you want people to send you? So what we're trying to do is build that archive and get people to give us a sense of why the tree, a tree might matter to them in a literary text. And we want to give us, get a sense of why people are noticing trees. There will be examples from you know, the canon of Irish writing, from Yeats, from Joyce, the kind of big, big hitters, as it were, the big figures. But also we're thinking about more recent novels that have focused on the tree are using the language of trees as a new way of writing character. So listeners might be familiar with Lynn Buckle's novel What Willow Says, which is an intergenerational story about a grandmother and granddaughter, um, a beautifully written, beautifully constructed story through which the characters develop a tree language. They keep noticing trees, they keep trying to identify tree species, they use Irish sign language to name the trees as well. And through 
the language that they form, they form an even closer bond. And that's just one example of how a tree in literature can be both a medium, a way for a writer to create story, to build relationships. But it's also then about, I think, what Lynn Buckle is doing in that novel is encouraging us as readers to be more in touch with nature, to, to have a re-enchantment with nature, and especially so in the context of climate crisis. So Stephen, then, how can our listeners engage with the project? Are you asking them for their reaction to, to trees already in literature so that it's their reaction to the way trees are described in literature is what you're concerned about finding out? So they can go to the project website, literatureinirelandtrees.com, and there's a section on it called Tree and Tell. So you can submit your entry there, you can submit your name, and you can submit your little quotation or your anecdote, your description of your most memorable tree in in this literary text. And through that then we want to develop this archive and also maybe have an exhibition that will feature a set of quotations, maybe with images as well, so that we can get this sense of how the tree is a recurring motif in Irish writing and Irish culture. So we want to kind of build that archive and think about how literature maybe engages in a form of what Simon Schama calls cultural reafforestation. So that writers over the centuries have actually been reafforesting Ireland, have been filling in um, a woodland that has been erased through all kinds of processes, primarily probably colonisation. Trees then are one of our main bulwarks against continuing climate change. So will there be any connection between this bulk of information that you have, which obviously reflects how people think about trees and how combating climate change can happen by planting more trees? I think literature does have a vital role to play in climate crisis awareness. As we're increasingly conscious though we need to move beyond awareness I think we're at maybe awareness saturation point and we need to move towards activism individual citizens can all play their part we all play our part but we know that we need collective action and collaboration and one of the issues that climate environmentalists I should say talk about is how we move from awareness into action and literature I think has long been declaring an emergency about our relationship with nature. There's a long history of writers who are expressing, representing nature, trying to encourage us to be in awe of nature. You can think of romantic period poets who are celebrating nature, in touch with nature. But even back to Shakespeare, to the early modern period, and Shakespeare's thinking, and as you like it, about tongues in trees, the retreat into Arden, Arden as refuge. And one of the things we're trying to think about then is how literature enables us to feel the climate crisis, to experience it. We are experiencing it in the daily news, but literature can maybe give us that gut feeling about it. Robert McFarlane, the literature professor and environmentalist, talks about how literature brings out a kind of feeling in us about nature, about our closeness to nature, about our responsibility to nature. And that literature, in bringing us into the world of nature, and I'm struck by the recent novel by Elif Shafik called The Island of Missing Trees, which has a range of characters, human characters, and then also has a talking fig tree. And I think what Shafik is doing in that novel is allowing us as readers to inhabit the more than human. And that might might sound a little abstract, but it is about making us feel in touch with nature to respect nature and to appreciate that nature has rights. So Native American poets and Native American writers, Joe Harjo is an example in her poem Remember, it asserts that nature has rights and if we think of nature as having rights we maybe then move towards an environmental activism whereby we're protecting nature, we're not extracting from it, we're not fracking, we're not cutting down trees, we're thinking about trees both as carbon sinks, as ways to mitigate against climate change, anthropogenic climate change or human-caused climate change. And we know that the government, the Irish government, is, is, has engaged in a whole series of replanting. It's part of a national strategy. Strategies about biodiversity are one way in which we can mitigate against climate change that we all play our role in it. We're, we're increasingly aware of the part that each of us has to play. And, and listeners might ask, you know, well, what is literature? 
what use is literature in this context? What use is literature if there's no planet B, to use Greta Thunberg's uh, phrase? You know, can we have books on a dead planet or an extinct planet or a planet that we have to adapt to? Writers, I think, are, are showing us ways in which we can get in touch with nature again, have a respect for nature through a kind of close proximity that they achieve, that, that a good book achieves in bringing us into the world of, be it a tree, a river, into you know what lies beneath our, our feet as well, the mycelium network that uh, Susan Simard talks about, through which trees communicate. And, and I found out about that, not by reading Simard, Simard's work, but by reading Richard Parr's novel, The Overstory. So literature has unlocked, for me at least, a new appreciation both of the arboreal, but also of the environment more generally. So Richard Power actually does put trees and humans on an equal footing so that we actually have a moral responsibility to wildlife, not just, as we sometimes think, to, to actual animals, but, but to the trees as well. And this is what you're hoping to, to put across, given, in fact, that Ireland, in the, in the EU, Ireland has 11% of its country under forestry. Only Malta has less than that, and Malta is a very small area anyway. But we are we are very bad at this. So in order to, to improve our chance against climate change, our attitude towards trees in Ireland will have to change to get more trees planted. And this is one different way that we might normally speak about on this programme, but looking at it through the eyes of literature. So this is why you are actually starting this project out and asking our listeners to engage with it. Yes, and Margaret Atwood talks about us moving from climate change to everything change. So the climate crisis doesn't just affect our relationship with nature, with the environment, it affects everything. It affects our lives on the planet. And she, as a writer, is thinking too about the role that literature can play? What does literature do in the context of climate change? What role might it have? And that goes to both the individual novels that we might read and our individual experience of those, but also what we do in the education system, what we do in schools, what we do in universities. So we could think about climate engaged learning through literature and the ways in which literature has a role to play, the way in which people who are teaching literature have a role to play in facilitating students, both in school and in university, of thinking about the environment as both a presence, but also as something that we need to face and have a responsibility to in literature. So one of the things that our students are doing in their English degree here in Maynooth University is a module called Lost Worlds, which is an early modern module, but which encourages the students to have an eco-journal So they write into it their observations about the text they're studying, some of which are Shakespeare, as you like it. So they're retreating into Arden, but they're also thinking about the world in which they live and connecting the literary text that's 423 years old to what's happening in their current moment, in their historical and cultural moment. And doing fantastic work, it it enables them to think about literature and the environment in a very proximate, very close way, how these two things intersect in ways that they might not have noticed before. Yes, you go on about the Forest of Arden. I remember we did As You Like It in school. Books and the running brooks, sermons and stones and good and everything and tongues and trees was the beginning of that quotation in fact and indeed there are other other literary tracts then you know not Shakespeare at all something like from the 16th century Kilkash and the person who wrote that poem could not imagine how we could live what can we do any longer we have no we have no woodlands the woodlands have ended and then how can we live how can we actually live without this backbone that is supporting us. So this has been going on for a very long time. So your students are busy keeping the diaries. What else are they doing? Do they find it interesting? I hope they do. I think they, they are interested in the environment as an issue. They're interested in climate crisis. They want to affect change in the world. And they might be surprised that literature can facilitate that. But I think they're discovering that there is both, as you mentioned earlier, Aina, that archive of literary texts, the Kilcash poem going back to the 16th century. And we, when I studied English literature, which is probably too long ago that I want to mention, but when I studied English literature, we weren't really thinking about the environment and environmental issues as emerging through literary texts, or that poems and plays and novels were actually recording 
environmental changes. But I now realise that they were, that they were doing that, and that we have Richard Parr's novel as an example, Shafik, uh, Lynn Buckle's novel as well. All these recent novels that have really brought us into nature and into the arboreal and into the environment and in all its wonders. But there's a long history of that. There's a long history of literature exploring nature, exploring the environment. And I think our students are, are appreciating that. It gives them a new perspective on literature as well, where you're not just thinking about human characters and character development. And that is one of the ways we draw in, we're drawn into a literary text. But we can also think about how we encounter the, the, the more than human in a literary text. So we have a module in first year English in Maynooth University that's called Clify that's climate crisis and the literary imagination. And I, I had a student before who said, you know, well, I don't see the connection between literature and climate change. And then at the end of the module, they were going, I can't but see the connection between literature and climate change because novelists and writers are, and artists are living in the world that is rapidly changing and are responding to that. And I think it is the, the, the beauty of literature and of the arts more generally that it can give us a way of both, com it compresses our world, condenses our world, but gives us the kind of hidden meanings of it that we might not see in our daily lives. It kind of unpacks so much for us, you know, that the literary text unpacks so much. And I think an arts degree as well, a humanities degree, can facilitate students in doing that kind of work, in thinking about the complexity of the world, a world that is changing rapidly, um, faster changes we've ever seen before and that literature can perhaps allow us to slow down to have a moment of pause to think about how we grapple with all these issues you know and the discourses of climate change of crisis of change all the terms that are, are kind of flowing over us that literature can give us a way to slow down and apprehend the world in a complex way so how long is the project going to run for it's going to run for a full year and we hope to have the exhibition um, late next year and then hope to have a publication that will come out of the project that will gather together a set of essays from writers, from literary critics, from visual artists as well. It was great to talk to you about this, Stephen. It's a whole new way of looking at trees, I have to say. Thanks so much, Aina. Great idea. More details can be found on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And we do indeed look forward to that publication, Stephen, when you have it. So keep in touch. Now they say good things come in small packets and nowhere is this more true than the pocket forest. The what? The pocket forest. A pocket forest is a small area of densely planted native trees, shrubs and wildflowers planted in areas as small as a single car parking space. Can you imagine it? They are a crafty way of sneaking a tiny wood into the most urban and concrete of places. Our John Bella Riley met Catherine Cleary, co-founder of Pocket Forests, a not-for-profit social enterprise in Dublin city centre. Thanks, Derek. So I'm here at the Digital Hub, just sandwiched between Guinnesses and the National College of Art and Design here in the heart of the Liberties in Dublin city centre. And I'm here with Catherine Cleary, co-founder of Pocket Forests. Catherine, what is a pocket forest? A pocket forest is an intensely planted small area of urban space where we plant and help communities to grow native trees and shrubs. Um, they can be as small as a single car parking space, so just six square metres, and we go up to between 50 and 100 square metres. So again, not very large, but a lot of plants in that space. That's right, Catherine. So as small as a single car parking space. So that slots very neatly into a city centre spot like this one here at the Digital Hub. And this one, Catherine, that we're standing beside is planted in, I suppose, a medium sized skip. That's right. The kind of skip that takes up one parking space is our footprint here. Um, we couldn't plant into the ground here in the Digital Hub. We had to do a container planting and we're all about repurposing materials as well. So we found an end of life skip. Thornton's donated it to us and we painted it and put a seat into it. And we planted 10 of our species, native species, into that with a, a good metre deep soil and woody material. We always try to recreate the conditions in as much as we can of a forest floor before we put the trees 
trees and plants in. Um, so that's what's in this skip. It's in its second growing season. It was planted last, the summer of 2021. So the trees have uh, have really thrived, even despite the hot conditions in, in the summer we've just had. Um, we've got a small crop of tomatoes that have grown from the compost that's in there and some nettles, which are a good sign that, uh, that the soil is very fertile. And what are the 10 species planted in this particular skip? So we have an elder here which survived a very heavy pruning by somebody who thought it was just a weed tree earlier in the in the year. Um, so the elder has come back with a vengeance. Just behind her we have a cherry. There's a rowan or a mountain ash. We have a willow behind that, a grey willow. We have a, a lovely hazel which is really um, bushing out into quite a shrubby tree. We have a gelder rose, which is another of our shrubs, and a spindle, which is a really beautiful shrub, which has, at the moment, at this time of the year, these pink berries on it with lovely orange seeds in them. Oh, yes, and we have a birch in there as well, a downy birch. So we have something like about six trees in this one kind of medium-sized skip, about the size of um, an average-sized car parking space. Some people might think that's a lot of trees in a tight spot, or is is it? It is a lot of trees, because typically for one of these trees, you might just give them this single amount of space. That's how our forestry and, I suppose, horticulture industry treats trees. They, They treat them as... Uh, either a timber crop so you're planting to allow the tree to make a maximum amount of timber or you're planting it on a low as a lone tree in a, in a city um, but actually if you look at how trees seed themselves in woodlands they tend to seed themselves very close together um, we know a lot more about the fact that trees depend on each other for nutrients for warnings about pests that they're communicating through an underground fungal network a lot of the time so What we're really trying to do by planting them this closely is to create that kind of an ecosystem and a kind of community of collaborative plants. Um, With our pocket forests that are planted into the ground, um, it may be a kind of a succession process where some of those trees, as they get bigger, might shade out some of the other trees and eventually in 10 or 20 years' time when we come back, there might be fewer trees, but the ones that are there will be very healthy because they have grown up with the shelter and community of a small guild of of other trees and shrubs around them. So the way we typically see trees planted in kind of like in parks and in gardens is that they tend to be standalone. But you're saying that this idea where they are, where they're very close knit is more of a natural state. Yeah, nature doesn't really do lone trees in this part of the world. I mean, you definitely have them on African savannas. You will have a a lone tree. Um, Maybe in some very hostile parts of the country where there's not a lot of soil, you might get a lone hawthorn or if it's being grazed. But if we're not grazing or spraying or mowing an area, trees tend to surround themselves with other plants all the time. They like company. They like not to have bare soil around them. They hate to have hard surface tarmac all around them or concreted all around them. That's a really tough place for a tree to try and grow. So we're just trying to open it up a little bit to be more of a naturalistic way of putting these native trees and shrubs into city areas. The, the interesting thing about this way of planting is that a lot of our Uh, forests which are in the ground weren't watered over the summer and while you could see street trees lone street trees dying because of lack of water those young trees which are usually much more vulnerable to drought fared very well because they're in this community they have very good soil we spend uh, the first part of our process is to work on the soil and to add in a lot of organic matter so that the soil becomes much healthier before the trees arrive. So you get this cycling of nutrients and water. They can hold on to absorb these downpours that we get and then that will allow them to withstand the droughts that, that come along as well. They would be kind of permaculture techniques, isn't that right? So that would be encouraging microbes and earthworms to do a lot of the heavy work instead of people with spades. Mm-hmm. We like to joke that we have a workforce of billions because we just make good conditions in the soil for all the soil life to do the work. There are earthworms that can come up from metres down and they make uh, they make lovely air pockets in the soil. What they excrete as they move through the soil is incredibly beneficial for other life within the soil um, and uh, we were just listening recently to Professor Yvonne Buckley from Trinity she was talking about a recent study from Nature saying that temperate soils which are the soils we have in, in Ireland are actually like rainforests when it comes to biodiversity they have so much biodiversity in them there are all kinds of life forms in the soil that we only know are there because of their DNA sequence we don't know what they are or what they're doing but they are incredibly good at 
cycling nutrients and collaborating with plants in order to share what the plants can get which is sugar from sunlight and what they can get which is all, which are all kinds of minerals and nutrients from the soil and they've worked out this wonderful collaboration between them so it's really exciting to try and recreate that in an urban setting where people can find out more about it and people love people love uh, you know earthworms and all kinds of things that they mightn't have thought they'd love before we start so that's that's been very fun and because the earthworms and the microbes do a lot of the heavy work that makes this type of gardening i suppose kind of more accessible to people of all abilities and ages that's right we've worked with people from i think our youngest forester was three and our el- our eldest person was in their early 80s so it's it's lovely because we can also repurpose waste materials like cardboard uh, food waste for compost um, lots of things that we throw away we can kind of loop back into a natural system and as I say just adding to what is there already in the soil and trying to enrich it from the top down um, a lot of what we do we just layer on we don't dig things out we don't remove grass we don't you know come in with heavy machinery and and try and make this a blank canvas on, on which we're going to impose control we just add to what's there and then put in these plants and shrubs and they know what to do they're they've been here for thousands of years and the soil life and the insect life and the bird life are all connected with these plants so we really want to see them being used and being planted in the city there is a danger and i think as we get into more extreme weather um there is a danger that people say well we can't plant these native trees because they can't withstand these hotter summers that we're having um, so, you know, the last thing I would like to see is olive trees being planted in the city because uh, cities tend to be hotter than, uh, than rural areas as well. Um, but I think with this method and with the soil regeneration and by planting a community of plants, we can still have these really important um, biodiversity enhancers coming into our city where people can learn about them and where most and, and urban areas where most people are based how many pocket forests do we have what are your expansion plans <laughs> global domination john we have 20 projects last year and this year with the woodland support fund from the department of agriculture and we've been funded from change to work with schools so by this coming planting season we will have planted 75 of these pocket forests of various different sizes around the country they are predominantly in dublin but we're also cross-border we have one in newry um, um, we have gone as far west as Ballina and as far south as Bishopstown and Cork. So we're, we're spreading, uh, we're growing around the country as much as we can. We're down, a little bit down the east coast and obviously counties adjacent to Dublin as well have, have plenty of representation on our map. All the details on our website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins and Niall Hatch. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland and our researcher stroke reporter today is John Bell O'Reilly. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. goodbye.